Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that encouraged and supported by your holy word, we may embrace and always hold fast to the joyful hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. In chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel, John the Baptist introduced us to the coming one, the Messiah. He's the Lord that Israel and indeed the whole world had been waiting for. He's the greatest one whom God had ever sent. Even greater than John, who was unworthy to carry his sandals. He's the one who shall baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And with a winnowing fork in his hand, he shall clear the threshing floor gather the wheat into his barn and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is not somebody to mess with. This is the Lord himself. By this one Lord, Jesus Christ, God accomplishes both his salvation and his judgment. This is the Holy One of God. And yet, what we find is that this Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Well, the first act of his public ministry is to identify himself with the poor, the needy and the sinful and seek to be baptised by John. Is it any wonder that John protests? And then given the opportunity, or should I say temptation, to take up a ministry that is sensational, spectacular and speedy, he rejects that and chooses instead to commence his ministry not in Jerusalem, but by the lake in the backwaters of Galilee of the Gentiles. And instead of choosing soldiers, statesmen and superstars, his first disciples are zealots, a tax collector and a fisherman. And far from having them set the world on fire, he sets them to be fishers of men. If John is expecting great things from Jesus, then he hasn't seen a lot of it so far. What Jesus does do, however, is he teaches with great authority. But far from putting axes in the hands of the disciples to root out hypocrisy and idolatry and corruption, Jesus seems to be arming those who would oppose him. And as for his disciples, Jesus promises them persecution and tough times. To John, this would hardly sound like the all-conquering Messiah that straightens highways in the wilderness raises valleys and lowers hills and mountains. Certainly Jesus' miracles are what you may expect from a Messiah, but they're not aimed at historical mass change. Jesus hasn't yet challenged any of the reigning or political powers. Instead, he deals with individuals, with lepers, with the paralyzed, the demon-possessed, the sick, the blind, the mute, and he even raises the dead. But far from reordering the kingdom of man to become the kingdom of heaven, Jesus' ministry seems to be almost like a paramedic, an ambulance ministry that picks up crushed victims of evil structures rather than combating the evil structures themselves. Meanwhile, the Pharisees still control popular religious life. The Sadducees control the temple. Herod's still on the throne and John's in prison about to lose his head. 
under such circumstances, it's not hard to imagine why John would send his disciples to ask Jesus in verse 3, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? It's not a rhetorical question, it's the question you ask if you really want to know who Jesus is. It's also the question that many of the early church fathers, Oregon, Chrysostom, Jerome, Augustine, and even John Calvin, they all thought that John was expressing not a personal doubt, but simply asking the question for the sake of his disciples. But I'm not so sure. John's confusion and reservations are sincere. Like prophets who have gone before him, he's had a moment of misery and misunderstanding and it's led to honest misgivings. It's actually reassuring to know that great prophets of God have feet of clay like the rest of us. Elijah despaired of his life after the victory at Mount Carmel as Jezebel pursued him. Jeremiah cursed the day he was born and he was grieved by the impending doom to come upon God's people. And now even John, the greatest of all the prophets, is having a kryptonite moment. And Jesus' response is gracious and correcting. Verse 4, Jesus replies, Report to John what you see and hear. And what they have seen is the works of Jesus in his many miracles of healing and forgiveness and raising the dead to life. And what they've heard is the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. John the Baptist needs faith that Jesus is the Messiah to come. And the way to bring him to faith is to point him to the words and the deeds of Jesus. For we know that then, like now, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. And like us, John needs to hear that. But what's rattling around in his head at the moment are likely to be the words of Isaiah 35. Say to those with fearful hearts, and at this moment that seems like John, be strong, do not fear, your God will come and he'll come with vengeance, with divine retribution and he'll come to save you. See, that's the Messiah that John's expecting. And John wants to know, is this you, Jesus? Or should we expect someone else? And Jesus' response, well, it's not only kind, it's instructive. Because Jesus himself quotes from the same chapter in Isaiah, almost word for word. And he says, go back and tell John what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. See, Jesus is not simply saying that he does all these things. He's saying to John, go back and read the scriptures again, John. He's saying to John, I am the Messiah and judgment is coming. But for now, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Because the Lord's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captors and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus' response to John is reassuring that he really is the one who is coming. He's the Messiah. And I want you to notice the list in verse 5. At last on the list, and right after raising the dead, 
Jesus finishes with, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Reads like a bit of an anticlimax, doesn't it? If I wanted to impress you with my credentials, then preaching to the poor doesn't seem nearly as important as raising the dead. If it was me, I'd finish with, and oh, by the way, I also raise the dead in my spare time. But as far as Jesus is concerned, the good news he gives to the poor, that's his best work so far. So it's not surprising that when you get to the end of chapter 11, that the chapter ends not with Jesus calling for people to come and be healed, but for the weary and the burdened to come and find rest for their souls. And in verse 6, Jesus concludes his message to John. And I want you to consider this. You see, Jesus could have said to John, he could have said, John, blessed is the one who never doubts that I am the Messiah. Hmm. Or he could have said, John, blessed is the one who is discouraged but remains strong in the faith. But neither of those things are going to encourage John. You see, they're triumphal words, but they're hardly pastoral. They set the bar way over John's experience. And they leave him with despair rather than hope. Instead, Jesus says, John, blessed is anyone who does not fall away on account of me. Jesus has placed hope and blessedness in a place where John can reach it. In effect, Jesus is saying, God bless you, John, if you don't throw your whole faith away, just because I'm a different kind of Messiah to the one that you're expecting. Your understanding of me, well, it's not wrong, but it really is truncated. The day of vengeance of our God, it'll come. But first comes comfort to all who mourn and provision for all who grieve. And that includes you, John. And if that's a message that John needed to hear, then it's certainly a message that we all need to hear. For none of us is so strong as to never doubt, to never falter, to never fear. We never stop needing grace and forgiveness and reassurance in our feeble attempts to become what God has called us to be. We are right to set our sights high because that's where God calls us, to faithfulness, to holiness and obedience. But we do well to check our expectations. And for that reason, Jesus asked the crowd in verse 7, What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? A man dressed in fine clothes? Well, the questions, at least in part, are rhetorical. And the answer to both of them is obviously, well, no. For clearly John is a prophet, and he's no ordinary prophet. Not only does he bear direct witness to the coming of the Lord, he's the prophet who has been prophesied. He's the one of whom Malachi says in verse 10, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And what I want you to notice about the prophecy is that Jesus applies the object of the prophecy directly to himself. And yet when you go back to the Old Testament and you read it in Malachi, the prophecy is spoken by God. And it refers not to the Messiah but to the Lord himself. That is... I, the Lord, will send my messenger John, 
who will prepare the way before me, the Lord. And suddenly the Lord that you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Jesus is taking a prophecy about God and applying it directly to himself. So you have to ask, but who does Jesus think that he is? Does he think he's the Lord? Does he think he's God with us? Does he think that he's both Lord and Christ? Well, absolutely, he, he does. And so does Matthew. The point is that the coming of the Christ is the coming of God himself. And while Jesus is telling us something important about John, Matthew is telling us something important about Jesus. And it's probably understood we're hearing something important about God himself. Here's how it works. Jesus tells us in verse 11 that there has risen none born among women who are greater than John the Baptist. But if the least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John, then how great is God's Messiah King sent from him? The argument seems to be that as great as John was, his ministry was old school, old covenant. He's the last and greatest Old Testament prophet. But now, even the most insignificant newborn babe in Christ is greater than John. Not greater in stature or holiness, but truly greater because by faith in Christ Jesus, he or she now lives under the new covenant, a better covenant than the old. So if even you and I, who are least in the kingdom of heaven, if even we are greater than John, what does that tell us about Jesus, by whom the kingdom comes and through whom the new covenant is inaugurated? And still speaking about John, Jesus says that from the time of John to his own time, violent men, presumably men like Herod and Caiaphas, the political and religious rulers of the day, violent men are doing all they can to violate and thwart the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And now Jesus is saying from verse 14 that the message of John is what is written in the prophets and the law. Indeed, Jesus is saying, if you can accept it, that John is the one whom the Jews were expecting, the one who would call Israel to repentance before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and that he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. The Jewish expectation was that Elijah would announce the coming of the Messiah. In those days, and in the homes of many Orthodox Jews today, that Passover is kept with an empty chair, and the chair is for Elijah, the anticipated predecessor of the Messiah. The empty chair reflects the hope of Malachi, who says, in the last two verses of the Old Testament, See, I'll send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I'll come and strike the land with total destruction. So Jesus is not saying that John is the reincarnation of Elijah, but he is saying that what they were expecting in Elijah is fulfilled in John. It is John who proceeds and indeed testifies to the coming Messiah. 
Indeed, as Jesus says in verse 15, to him who has ears to hear, it is John in the spirit of Elijah who testifies to the coming of the Lord. <clears throat> now, Jesus has been really clear that it's okay to have doubts. But we shouldn't struggle and doubt because our expectations have not been met. We don't have to lower our expectations about God, but we may have to reassess our expectations about ourselves and re-examine what it is that we truly believe about Jesus and the Gospel. You see, ultimately Jesus calls us to himself. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But he also points us to the scriptures. He points us to the prophets from Moses to John who call us to prepare the way for the Lord. These prophets recorded God's salvation history and then in the fullness of time God sent his son to teach and perform miracles, to be lifted up on the cross and to rise again from the dead. And all before eyewitnesses. And all of these things are recorded in the Old and the New Testaments respectively. And yet so often we want to ask God for more. Like the crowds who followed Jesus because he fed them with loaves and they had their fill. And like the Sadducees and Pharisees, we, we ask for a sign from heaven that we might see and believe. And yet all the while God has plainly given to us his word written in scripture and his word made flesh in Christ Jesus the Lord. And when God says, repent, we may hear the dirge, but we might refuse to mourn because life already feels pretty good and we want to live triumphant lives, our best life now. And when God says, believe, we might hear the pipes, but we refuse to dance because, well, life's just so full of options and we're just waiting for a sign from God, a word of prophecy perhaps, that we might know for sure God's will for us. And so instead of looking to God's word and God's son, we look everywhere else and we become like spoiled children in the marketplace, calling out to others. So brothers and sisters, let's not be like that. When we have doubts, when we have fears and when we have uncertainties, let's not be as children tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. We have the Holy Scriptures and they're able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And we have the prophetic message as something that's completely reliable and we do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. And that day has come at the first advent and it will come again at the second advent when the Lord Jesus shall return in glory. And until that day, let us purify ourselves by obeying the truth. Let us have a sincere love for each other and love one another deeply from the heart. For we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and the enduring word of God. And this is the word that was preached to you. Blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of him.